0: hello and welcome to this episode of 10,000 posts it's the show about how everything is posting uh, my name is Hussain I am back from Japan I'm very sad about it um, I every podcast I've been on which has been two so far I have just spoken about all my time in Japan and how it changed my life uh, but we're not going to be talking about well we might talk about Japan but not really we uh, just just actually just as a note Phoebe uh, Phoebe hasn't stopped me from Japan talk because she is not uh, here today. Uh, but I am joined by uh, I am joined by Peter Mitchell, who is a historian. He is the author of Imperial Nostalgia: How the British Conquered Themselves, which is published by Manchester University Press. Uh, Peter, how's it going? Yeah, Grants Hello, thanks for having us on. Uh, no, I'm very I'm really excited uh, to do this. Uh, partly because uh, uh, your book is really good. Uh, I really really enjoyed reading it, and it like part of the reason why I thought you'd be a good guest. For our show is because we have spoken about nostalgia in different forms uh, throughout the time that we've been doing the show, actually. Uh, and we've talked about like the ways in which nostalgia is kind of expressed online and the aesthetics around it. Uh, we've talked about the ways in which nostalgia is often kind of used to uh, thwart like any type of progress or any type of kind of like Im- and just the idea of like be un- being unable to like imagine a future which I think is like something that happened, you know, is a conversation that happens quite a lot in, you know, certain political spaces. I think the, like, I was really fascinated by your book because, partly because it kind of really looks at the real, real, like British flavor of what you call imperial nostalgia. Although I think it very much applies to different, like lots of different people in lots of different countries. Um, But it also kind of goes to sort of explain why, in british politics like there seems to be this real lack of ability to imagine anything better despite the fact that everything seems to be disintegrating like so what should be quite easy in terms of like imagining a future where certain things are fixed or work better there seem like politicians seem to just be completely unable or unwilling to do it um so i guess, i guess i wondered like is that kind of like a, a succinct enough kind of thinking behind some of what you were writing about. And maybe that's a good starting point. Like what what kind of made you think about, what, what were the things that you were thinking about when you were like writing this book? Because I know that in the introduction, you sort of talk about working in an archive and you're doing like archival work on the British Empire around about a time when lots of this kind of imperialist imagery is being uh, used, uh, particularly in the Brexit campaign, but like generally in kind of British politics around about the mid to late 2010s.
1: Yeah, um, <clears throat> I mean, that, I mean that, that thing I write in the beginning is it, about you know it's about me sitting in the British Library and uh, doing. But I should say I'm not actually a historian, but I was briefly doing proper history for a job. And what I was doing, this was like the day Joe Cox was killed, was uh, was reading letters that were sent between the India Office and Indian presidencies mm. about getting troops out to put down the 1857 uprising. And it was kind of like going through the emails of every bad office temp job I've ever had, except right. what was actually, it was really familiar, really kind of you know, like pe- people get too excited about the kind of the arch- archival moment of recovery, but I was literally just reading like someone's boring work emails, except that they were about how to get enough troops to India to put down a rebellion. Uh, mm. They were about the kind of the application of Im- Im- imperial force and violence. and. Um, and while I was doing this, you know, Joe Cox is murdered. I think the day started with um, with English football fans like throwing coins at migrant children in uh, in France. Uh, it was mm. the day Nigel Farage unveiled that poster with the kind of huge, massive, undifferentiated brown humanity coming towards the camera, um, and it was there, there was a sense that. Uh, you know, what was looking at this kind of violence was um, was really kind of, was still kind of wreaking havoc in the world. Um, which is obviously, I know that's a bit of an overdetermined kind of um, anecdote. But there was this sense around Brexit, and I don't want to over Brexit, but there was this sense that what was being recaptured was a way of going back to how things were before. But that before mm. was always as nostalgists always are, was extremely ill-defined. There was no, you know, before what, you know what I mean? Like, we need to get the empire back. We need to, you know, send the darkies home. Like, there was no, no specifics ever. Um, and, you know, that got me thinking more about the ways that the history I was doing was suddenly at the centre of a kind of growing kind of cultural clash, over uh, which has largely to do with universities and mm. And the kind of the ever-present threat of whether whether the kids are being indoctrinated with anti-colonial communism, and um, yeah, so that all that all kind of coalesced there. I yeah. mean, about about the kind of politics stuff. I mean, I've always been really interested in the ways the past is used to structure the present, and the way, and well, to structure and police, um, mm. but also just the way that the past kind of falls in upon the present, um, in good ways and bad, and just in, in ways that are normally kind of really complex. Um, I mean, maybe it's a generational thing. I was born in 1982, and we kind of grew up with this sense of it being the end of a century. And I kind of grew up as well in a, in a political tradition on the left and in the Labour Party that was kind of, that was entirely about the trade union struggle and the construction of the welfare state and that spirit of 45 stuff.
0: Mm. And really
1: had very little, and this is a very Blairite moment. Had very little to say analytically about the present, wasn't really invested in the present. It's mm. kind of you people would ask, you know, what are, your, what are your politics? And so, well, my politics are that my great granddad went down the mine at age 12 and was a working class autodidact and became a trade union leader. So, well, that's not actually a politics, that's that's a history that you, you need sure. to do something more with that. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, I've always been into that. Um, and I you know, I think in in some ways the ways that we use the past to construct the present are often more interesting than the past itself.
0: Mm. That's a really like succinct, really succinct explanation. Like some of the things that you uh, you brought up, um, I I have like the questions where I'll sort of asking them in in more detail. I think as a way of framing this discussion, and also just a way that it can sort of relate to digital culture as well. One of the bits that I kind when I was reading the book that almost seemed like a bit of a glue, the, the thing that sort of ties these two, like our interests and like the stuff that you've written together is your framework of understanding nostalgia. Um, and in particular, you talk about like a nostalgia that is very heavily linked to mourning and sadness mm-hmm. and obviously the idea of loss. And you sort of write about how, like, in some ways this is kind of not that different to no, you know nostalgia as it's sort of like understood, I guess, medically in terms of like the way there's there's this really sort of like haunting but quite really beautifully written anecdote about where you write about your personal life and the ways in which like you know you kind of felt like the sort of nostalgia, like your feelings of nostalgia around like a loss of a family member, was like far less to do with like bringing something back materially, but much more about bringing back in bringing back an emotion that may or may not have necessarily existed, but sort of felt very real. And the ways in which like imperial nostalgia kind of manifests in similar ways. And I think you sort of alluded to it a little bit where in the kind of, in the political discussions towards the late 2010s uh, that you were observing, they're not really talking about like, oh, we want to bring the empire back or we want to sort of like loot more stuff. It's more about trying to bring back a feeling. And Mm -hmm. the issue is that no one can really determine what that feeling is, which is partly why you then have this thing, you know, you you have this sort of like criticism, so to speak, of um, like pro-Brexit campaigners who had promised like things that they weren't ever able to materialize and then wondering why, oh, how can these people be so stupid to like vote for, uh you know, v- vote for this on the basis that, you know, they were being serious about funding the NHS and stuff. When in reality, it, well, that was, that seemed to be more of like a side point. The re, you know yeah. and the actual invoking was it was more about invoking a feeling but i exactly. think it's kind of hard to articulate and i wondered whether you could elaborate on ha- your framework of understanding nostalgia and the ways in which like imperial nostalgia in particular is linked to this sense of kind of imagined mourning
1: well i mean i, th- I think uh, like quite a good place to start is to slightly if we can kind of put aside the political ways we normally think about nostalgia like you know, there's, there's always a kind of ongoing thing about Brexit where people are like, was it imperial nostalgia? Did people want to bring back the empire? So like, that's not what nostalgia is. That's not how it works. Hmm. Um, I think we need to think more more kind of introspectively about the kind of affective content of nostalgia because everyone mourns. Um, everyone has a childhood. Uh, everyone is susceptible uh, to you know, remembrance of things past. And that's, you know, that's not inherently a bad thing. Um, We all live through our past. Um, And, yeah, I mean, when I I talked about, say, losing my dad when I was young, uh, what I was trying to kind of get back to there is the sense that when you get, there's there's this kind of sort of slightly oversimplified Freudian distinction between uh, mourning and melancholy, where mourning is the kind of process that, you know, ends ends up, you know, enriching you or whatever. and um, melancholia is when that one becomes arrested, becomes kind of interjected, and you uh, you know it becomes more of a kind of pathology. Mm. And uh, and obviously that's a gross <laughs> oversimplification. So massive apologies to anyone who actually knows that Freud. But um, my my experience of, of losing my dad young was that later I really thought that by I had this kind of magical thinking going on thinking that if I could just reassemble the parts of our lives before my dad got sick and died, I could somehow bring him back. And mm. I can really vividly really remember sitting in the back of my man's car one day and realizing that I'd been thinking this and that I'd been acting in this way. It's like, but this, you know, I'm arranging all these fragments mm. around an absent center thinking that I can mm. con- conjure back the kind of the sense that the world isn't broken. And, um, mm. And this, you know, this is a really universal experience. Um, We we all live, to some extent, in a kind of, in our personal ways, in a broken world that was once whole. Um, That's Mm -hmm. as universal as it gets. And I think, you know, the ways that we construct collective, um, pre-broken worlds are obviously social and political, and the kind of the compensation that they offer is enormously powerful and there isn't a politics anywhere. There's no kind of way of relating to the world in in a Mm. semi-organized way that doesn't rely in some sense on an imagined past that can be recaptured. So, you know, like Mm. we all, we like to laugh at everyone else's, but we all have them. Um, You know, like 2012 nostalgia among certain kind of subcultures on the internet, you know, 2012 posting about like, hey, remember all the dancing nurses? Yeah, the the year after the riots, uh, two years in austerity. Um, you know there's Owen Hatherley's great book on kind of uh, on austerity nostalgia uh, the Ministry of Nostalgia where you know like during the early years of austerity there was this kind of this hearkening back to uh, you know remember Mm. remember Spirit of 45 and Council Houses and the NHS and like but also you know the Clapham Room Army and the chap and all that kind of all these weird signifiers of a kind of of something that we can kind of invoke that Gives you a feeling of being in a world you understand that's before the mm-hmm. dislocations of the present. I think. I think when we're trying to think these through these things politically and the kind of implications, mm-hmm. their political implications, like we do need to kind of look inside ourselves and think, what's my unbroken world? What am I harking back to? Um, because every like that fantasy of recovery is so potent. Um, and I think uh, in, so there's Dan Hancock's this really great uh, article on, you remember when bin men were hard, you remember proper bin men in the, mm. article, in the Guardian from a couple of years ago. And he says, you know, like this is everyone wants the feeling of the world that they experience as being lost also having not been experienced and ratified by someone else.
0: Interesting, yeah. This is yeah, why
1: these, yeah. This is why these posts circulate. You want someone else to say, yeah, I remember that too.
0: Yeah. And I think because when we spoke about nostalgia like a while ago, I think very like that we sort of came to like quite a similar uh, analysis, which was, you know, that part of the kind of appeal of this type of, especially like this imagined nostalgia is that as it kind of gets circulated and recirculated, um, there is this kind of, I'm probably butchering the analysis, but it kind of felt like there's this sort of feedback where, you know, you can your sort of feelings about a particular moment, even if they aren't necessarily like universal, even if they aren't necessarily truthful, um, they can kind of feel reinforced just by other people sort of like sharing it by engaging with it. It can kind of feel like oh, this imagined like past that you're yearning for, despite like you know the fact that the way, even the ways that we look back on you know our own past or like you know our own histories, other people's histories and stuff, even though they changed over time, um. The sort of feedback loops that come with sharing reinforce the idea that, like the way that you saw it and understood it, was real and authentic, and therefore there is something material to like go back to. And I wondered, like, whether does like imperial nostalgia sort of take on a similar shape? Like, is there is its potency? Um, yeah, is its potency really just this idea that as enough as as you know, if you have enough people sort of sharing and sort of saying that they experience particular things then um like that kind of becomes something real like feels real and material and therefore something that is attainable
1: yeah but like again like i think this stuff is it's it's really it's it's not like a complete cure but i think it is really useful to kind of view this stuff personally you know like almost all of us have lost people in the past few years mm. um and you know i kind of i i had this recently i lost my sister a couple of years ago and mm what kind of struck me a few months into that is that me and her had a secret language and shared memories. And Mm. I was now the only holder of those memories and the kind of, and the need to, the need to have that, that whole world that you shared ratified by someone else is is almost Mm. physical. It's, it's really, really strong. And, you know, when, when you're actually engaging in kind of, you know, structured or unstructured, uh, rituals of mourning when people come together and remember a particular person and kind of evoke their presence mm. that that remembered person might might start to diverge in quite wild ways from the actual person that existed um, but the memory is something that makes an incredibly powerful bond mm. between the people in the room who are sharing that memory even if, even if it's becoming largely fictional um, and I think that's very much what happens with any polit- political nostalgia, like with empire nostalgia. What's interesting about imperial nostalgia, I think half the time, and this made it really difficult to write a book about from my point of view, mm. is that it's really about the empire. Yeah. Um, it's about a sense of safety. It's about a sense of supremacy. It's about mm. it's about the opposite of a sense of humiliation that you experience in the present. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, Let's just name it. It's about whiteness. Um, yeah. But, you know, like, the way the way that you'd see Imperial Nostalgia fun, folded into stuff about gender, it's like the transes are coming for the Empire. Like, it's just completely bizarre. But the affective content holds together. Yeah. I'm scared of blue-haired genderqueer kids, mm. uh, which is why I, I imagine the Empire had none of them. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's got nothing to do with the Empire at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think you're right about just like the feeling of like safety and the feeling of like, even when you look at sort of the online groups that are that sort of like their popularity kind of comes out of um, nostalgia. So much of it is really about it really does speak to this idea of like, you know, remember when things were safer and remember when things were easier. So, yeah. you know, you have you know, you have groups, for example, that are like, you know, remember when. Uh, Like, you know, remember when, you know, you could live uh, in the neighborhood and never lock your doors, but also ones where it's like, remember where like the police were on the streets every, you know, on on every street, which I, neither of those things I don't, I think were true, either like in the UK or in America. Like, I don't think any of that was ever true, but it speaks to, but like, the thing is, even when you point this out and like, this is the thing, like I see online quite a lot like people who maybe have good intentions who will say things like oh you know this sort of thing that you remember like you never like that was never real or like you know the history books sort of say otherwise and you know even with the best of intentions it kind of feels like well no the point like the reason why this works isn't because of whether it's factual or not the point is that like the there is this sort of feeling of safety That, well, they're sharing at this point where it kind of comes out of a sense of insecurity. But as you point out, like breaking that down, like so much of it is very much kind of speaks to this broader idea of like, you know, remember when, you know, remember when like white supremacy was much more visibly dominant or remember when like a certain type of white supremacy was more, lawyers like better established. I mean,
1: there's, there's, there's there's that bit where like, remember white dog shit suddenly becomes, remember white people.
0: <laughs> you, you know what I
1: mean? Like, um, I, I, I mean, this is the thing. Is like, there's, this um, I mean, I, I stay away from Facebook because I, you know, I want to maintain, you know, like some margin of well-being. <laughs>
0: but, um, there's like weird stuff on there now. I feel like I, I had to log <laughs> in the other day because when I was, when I was, uh, when we were on holiday, uh, one of my friends. Uh, so in Japan, people still use Facebook quite a lot. I was really right. surprised by that um so we were trying to get in contact with one of our friends and so i had to go on and i was just scrolling through like my feed because i hadn't been on it for months um and like i remember when it used to be really mine particularly wasn't particularly like politically reactionary but what it was filled with was lots of weird content that wasn't quite ads they weren't quite posts they were just like thing they were just sort of sensory things that yeah. You know, lots of' lots of weird cooking videos and lots of weird sort of it's like,
1: like um, sort of like the adult version if you know those those um, those channels on YouTube that just show weird colors content for toddlers
0: yes yeah like 24
1: yeah, yeah. hours a day and it's like if you try to watch it as an adult like you lose your mind um, yeah. but somehow it works. Yeah, it, 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 it finds the toddler brain and, and just yeah. it. And there was like one
0: awesome. there was one that I got and probably because we were in Japan, but it was like a kind of weird. It was like sort of a sequence of videos that felt like you were watching just colors. And it was like a showcase of all these gadgets that you could like buy from a particular Japanese store. But all the gadgets like just didn't make any sense. And I, there's like one that sticks in my mind, which was supposed to be like a banana peeler. But the point is like, you would sort of put the you would get a banana, you would put the peeler on the banana and it would and it would strip it like you would. It, it, it oh, What's like, the you know, like an apple core, like yeah. it would make a banana core where it'd strip all the things. But you would get like a cylinder of banana afterwards. And it was like one of the strangest things I've ever seen. It sounds absurd. Um,
1: and
0: it was just like um, you would you would just sort of do this just to kind of weird people out. But then it was like, oh, no, you can buy all these weird gadgets that you might use once in your life, but like are presented as very oddly efficient. At this like one sort of gadget store in like Tokyo. Damn. I mean there was, <laughs> so it's, there's, it's, there's that moment isn't it with, with certain
1: parts of online where like you realize yeah. that what you're looking at has become pure content. It's kind of lost yeah. all sense of like it's I was, it's, moved, it's moved beyond yeah. the strictures of form or use value or anything. It's just content.
0: When I saw it I was very much like should I start a Facebook gr- gr- group called like remember when they peeled bananas normally? Um, Have you? Yeah. You know, Maybe 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 I might have to do that. But sorry, I I I, I, I distract I, I distracted ourselves for a second. You were saying something about um Yeah, you were saying something about like the ways in which like the groups have changed like or the ways in which like this insecurity has changed.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean so I've, I've noticed on Twitter like a fair bit there's quite a lot of there's a few kind of accounts with huge follower counts, just like unbelievably high follower counts that uh, will like have a picture of like, you know, like epping high street in 1951 and be like remember when it was safe it was a better country there, there were none of them around you know what i mean it's just like it's completely the you know the subtext has very much become text mm. um but i mean beyond that there's all this stuff about like yeah remember when you could leave your door knocked everything was safe me and me mates you sit play down the bomb site." <clears throat> One time, one of them stuck the head in in an oil barrel and set fire (laughs) to it, and got third-degree burns all over his face. That's an actual story I got from an oil history interview. And he was saying, "Remember before the state made everything bad, when you could just do what Hmm. you liked? It's so (laughs) dangerous now." Um, And yeah, there's, but but you know, you look at, say, you're looking at a picture of Epping High Street in 1951, and in 1951, um, the country was a lot more violent than it is now. Uh, loads of people were demobbed after the war and after national service and they had guns and there mm. were razor gangs and uh kosh gangs and it was and it was horrific like it was really and if you got arrested by the friendly neighborhood cops they all um they came around your cell and gave you a kicking afterwards <laughs> e- even if you were white. Mm. Um and you know like this kind of fantasy that things were safe doesn't isn't what it's about. The thing is like historical accuracy's got nothing to do with it. Mm. What it's got to do with is the fact that if you're sharing that meme now, you survived. Mm. And back then you weren't scared of dying because you weren't 65, Mm. um, which (laughs) is also a large part of it. Uh,
0: I, I remember seeing one. I feel like I absolutely remember seeing one. Um, and again, like the fact that I don't remember whether I saw this or not, is like kind of, that could be an episode within itself, uh, but one where it was being, it was like nostalgic for like lead paint or like a particular kind of paint that had (laughs) lead in it because it was like, no, because their thing was just like, oh, but because the paints have now become too water-based, you have to buy more of them. And therefore it's this big racket that's been like set up by like big house, big, like big Dulux or whatever um and it's like it, and it was insane it was insane to <laughs> see but i think it speaks to something else that you also write about quite a lot which is like the ways in which paranoia and resentment kind of is very much like the dry like or i don't know whether it like drives the nostalgia or whether like the sort of like sense of nostalgia within the framework of mourning kind of drives this resentment as well uh because again like so much of like this imagined this imagined nostalgia is and like this fixation of loss kind of then manifests in like, well, if I've lost something, then it's been taken away from me. Yeah. And like, you know, and doesn't make and it doesn't need to like make sense who took it from you or why, or even like what forces sort of led you to lose things. You know, and, you know, it it and um one of the things I was thinking about is like a, what how like a whole industry has sort of been built around kind of like trafficking this type of or or like understanding and expressing like nostalgia in this way, where it's like, well, you know, remember when you could do this but now like because of like the woke or because of like the immigrants or you know and often it doesn't even need to be succinctly like one group you know no, uh it's, it's it is just like them. it's, that, it, that it's just, the, yeah yeah and i and i wondered whether you could talk about how over like in because you also saw these patterns when you were researching the book when you were researching the archives as well like in your archives as well um how does that type of resentment get manufactured and like what are the similarities between the ways in which like the resentment and loss of the empire like are there similarities between that and like the type of how um imperial nostalgia is ex- sort of expressed today where we, we have these kind of like nefarious and shady groups that are never defined because they never need to be yeah. um yeah i mean
1: i mean start starting back at the kind of uh, affect like you know paranoia i think it's really cognate with mel- melancholia with you know like if if in melancholia you kind of you believe you've you've kind of arranged your world so that everything only really exists in so far as it relates to this lost object, and even if you can't name the object, even if you're not really aware of it, everything really relates back to this this thing, this this immovable loss in your belly. Um, you know, pa- paranoia has a really similar structure, like to the to the conspiracy theorists, to the paranoia. Like everything that you see, the entire visible and palpable world is is in you know, it's major significance is how it relates to uh, you know, gender ideology or the Jews or the Great mm. Reset or whatever you picked up from GB News today. Um, <clears throat> and it's obviously it's a very it's a very seductive mindset and a very difficult one to get out of. The I mean, the, the ways that let let me think how to answer this. The I, I write about this a bit in the book, but the all. All nostalgias can be historicized and you know, all obviously, all, all every era's idea of its history is is shot through with nostalgia. Like every era constructed some political subjectivity through um, through writing the past and constructing mm. and you know manufacturing the past. And um, this, this, uh, I really recommend Hannah Rose Woods' uh, book the Real Nostalgia. Um, which is just kind of goes back the kind of nested nostalgia. It's like, here's our nostalgia for the 50s. And in the 50s, they had nostalgia for the Edwardian era and the New World era, et etc et Our actual, the imaginary of empire that we work with today, you know, there's a particular kind of set of vague images. You know, it's, it's Zulu, it's redcoats, um, steamships, uh, it's a camp coffee extract it's like, you know, like Queen Victoria's like loyal Scottish ghillie and loyal like Punjabi mm. manservant. Um, all that kind of tinselly stuff was largely kind of manufactured in the way that traditions are um, in the late 19th century. Uh, where I started looking at how these things were made was when I was writing a PhD on the archive of the East India Company. And mm. I started to realize that the ways the archive had been made in the late 19th century were just as interesting as what was actually in there and it turns out that it, the civil servants working in the india office who decided 25 years sorry no uh, 17 years into the existence of the india office after the abolition of the east india company they were all old east india company hands and their loyalty was to a company that had been abolished and basically taken over by the government and they really mm-hmm. resented that so they were constructing an archive that was supposed to be, you know, the kind of master archive of the British colonial presence in South Asia. And it still is, um, which really valorized company rule. And everything they wrote about it was like, sadly, sadly, we have fallen off from our original mission. We shall mm. never see those things again. Like there's that kind of Kipling recessional mood. It's like, ah, yeah. oh, the great sunset of the empire. We are seeing the death of all our dreams. Alas, the, The empire will just become a giant east end of London now, which is an interesting kind of um, transposition. Um, And there's this furious melancholy and resentment, even at the moment of the creation of our most kind of triumphalist imaginary of empire. And that's exactly the one that we're now melancholic about in our turn. Um, So, sorry, I don't know quite how that relates to your question, but... um, but these, these, these things are nested, and they're all ways of uh, defining others, Like, or they can be used as ways of defining others, which is why, like we say, you know, somehow, I think this is in the first chapter of my book, somehow a fight about Kipling becomes about whether the young people are all right with gender. You know yeah. what I mean? Somehow it becomes about free speech in universities. Somehow it becomes about the kind of general sense that there is a them, there's a they, who are coming for you, and that you're not safe anymore. And conversely that your safety, as you know, the obviously the kind of object of this is a white person above a certain age, but just any white person will do. Don't even necessarily need to be white. Um, the idea is that your safety, your dignity was dependent on certain people's lack of safety and dignity. And now mm. they're asking for it, which means yours is imperiled. There's only so much to go around. Um I think that's the basic kind of yeah. emotional economy of it.
0: Yeah, well, I, I, and I think that sort of that kind of really nails it on the head in terms of like, um, yeah, I think emotional economy is like a really is like a really good, really good way of uh, of understanding it and of referencing it. Only just because like, you know, it again, it's very much just like the idea that, you know, yeah, oh, how easy it is to invoke emotions. And I guess one of the things I was wanting to ask you about as well was about how you kind of felt online culture sort of interfaces with this um, only because, you know, when we so- when we think about like the ways in which the internet kind of works and the ways in which like, you know, even the ways that like posting works, so much of it is obviously like emotive and so much of it is driven by like how we feel, how we make other people feel. Um, so much of like the digital economy is very much rooted in this idea of invoking and manufacturing feelings. And I wondered whether and communities of feeling.
1: Incredible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah, 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 exactly. And so, um, you know, where sort of like imperial nostalgia uh has kind of has always sort of existed within an emotional economy of sorts. And there's like a really fascinating section of the book where you talk about the ways in which like an archive is like sort of assembled, and the point of it is to kind of almost like in in some ways, like and uh, it was really interesting because I actually did uh, my my bachelor's dissertation. I had looked at the ways in which. Um, British, uh, the 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 sort of formation of like the British Mandate of Palestine and the ways in which like kind of uh, archives and maps and sort of brochures and stuff like the assemblages sort of built around that to oh, cool. kind of like justify like you know the British you know the control of Palestine yeah um yeah. and you know and obviously that has kind of like very deep implications but you also write about the ways in which uh papers and assemblages like in the India Office for example is kind of used to like its purpose is to sort of situate. Uh, Britain's kind of like so called like rightful role as an imperial leader and the ways in which that as that is then kind of uh, threatened by, um, you know, by, you know, threatened largely for like commercial reasons, it's sort of its existence is kind of it takes on a more emotional uh, or, or its importance is sort of seen as more emotional. Like it, it has to exist in order to kind of like justify the broader kind of imperial framework. And I wondered whether you saw similarities between the ways in which these types of archives are constructed and the ways in which like online material that is also also exists to kind of invoke imperial nostalgia like yeah are are there sort of similarities or do you kind of feel that like the way that the internet is structured kind of means that you can't construct that so deliberately or the ways in which imperial nostalgia is expressed if is more is, is yeah is less kind of directed and much more fluid
1: well, um, I mean, thinking about imperial nostalgia as it is a kind of political force in Britain now, one of the quite interesting things about it is is that it's not hugely online. Um, mm. it's, it's, it's not one of the major posting ideologies. Um, and I think that's largely because it's directed at people who aren't very online. Um, I, like you're saying, like watching a kind of political communities and communities of feeling and kind of new kind of community held structures of feeling emerging is on the internet is fascinating because you're seeing it happen in real time in its rawest possible form all completely in the open, you know, communities of feeling used to be made in between actual people in rooms that you couldn't see into. And now you can see whole political movements and ideologies taking place exclusively online. Mm. And I mean, like watching, watching British transphobia (coughs) over the past 10 years, you realise that, like this, is a political movement that is structured almost completely by Twitter, mm. and of, obviously to some extent by Facebook and, uh, say, Mumsnet. But it's it's the most online hate movement I've 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 ever spent any time engaging with. <laughs> I wish I hadn't. Um, it just couldn't exist in in the form it does without without Twitter. And you can see how communal languages. Are, and shibboleths kind of arise and how certain feelings are invoked and, and and that kind of emotional economy again kind of coming into being and a kind of ecology kind of growing up around it. Um, mm. which is brilliant. And I haven't really seen that so much with Imperial Nostalgia, because as I say, it's it seems that they're not online. Too in the kind of current past five, ten years, a kind of discourse of imperial nostalgism, you know, this the stuff like you know, kind of David Abalafia's and Nigel Bigger's mm. like the way, say, Douglas Murray talks about history. Um, it mostly happens in print media and on telly, and in its imaginary online, and especially Twitter, is actually, it's the threatening other. It's mm. it's the problem, like it's it's the bogeyman. So N- Nigel Bigger, who's like the kind mm. of, one of our main kind of imperial, I guess one of the main kind of functionaries of imperial nostalgia, uh, or, you know, of, or, or pipes of imperial soldier if you prefer in this country um he writes obsessively about about online culture despite not mm. really engaging in it much like he yeah you know he recently his new book colonialism and moral reckoning uh, which you know fairly uh pretty misleading title obviously um was got a very very negative review in the journal of imperial and commonwealth history which is you know it's a kind of three-star like um peer-reviewed um, academic uh, journal and he wrote a 14,000 word rebuttal which was also published in this p- really serious peer-reviewed academic journal and several thousand words of this rebuttal as with almost everything he writes online about the threat to free speech the threat to traditional values the threat to basic pride and being white in the empire and stuff in universities several thousand words of it were about people being rude to him on the internet
0: yeah, <laughs> specifically,
1: specifically about people who aren't white and male being rude to him on the internet. Right. Yeah. Um. And he just he just keeps coming back obsessively at the same thing. The time that this particular historian, who's neither white nor male, was rude to me. And you know, like, you know, like Priyamvada Gopal at um, Cambridge, she's had her picture mm. in the Times, the Mail, the Telegraph. Like they've done everything except print her address. Uh, yeah. Like this, this in, in the same way that they do with Ash Sarkar. it's like any opportunity to put this put this woman forward as the symbol of a threatening other, and it's their mm. activities online that are always held to be in some way almost uniquely threatening to the kind of integrity to the to the safety of the uh, online old white <laughs> male, um, mm. which is hilarious in a way. I mean, like we've all been called a dick on the internet. Yeah. But we can't all make careers
0: out of it. No, I have asked my agent whether I can do that as like a second book. Just like all the times people have been mad at me online. Uh, um, But but it's like it's yeah. It's it's, that's actually a really really interesting point because I guess when I was when I when I think about some of the stuff you write about, um, what was like the the things that were sort of written and produced like during like the twilight of the British Empire. Um, and what and the people that were considered to be like threats towards it, or like the people who were considered to be, uh, or the groups that were sort of considered to contribute to its decline, mm. it kind of felt like. And again, I, I, I you know, uh, I'd be interested to find out like what it was in actuality, but it didn't. It felt like it, they were still the paranoia and the sort of resentment was still there, but it was more towards particular kind of groups, and maybe because of this idea that you know the empire as like a project. Was kind of viewed in this, you know, not in such individualistic terms. And it feels like the people who now are kind of campaigning about you know, the fact that there's too much like anti-imperial education or, you know, that quote unquote, like both sides aren't sort of talked about in like equal ways. And therefore you have like biases in the school system. And that is another yeah, symbol of yeah. wokeness, but it feels very fixated on the individual. And that almost, not to say that like it's counterintuitive, but like, cause I, you know, they're still sort of very much achieving their objectives in terms of like both getting the attention and also sort of having politics very much orientated around them. But it, very, it does kind of give off this feeling, this very sort of online feeling of um, using there, there's, this, there's this term that I remember kind of uh, when I was like a dick online and like a 4chan guy often being used, which was like, you know, the 4chan is not like your public army or like, you know, this forum is not your public army to like wage war on your opponents. And whenever I sort of see this type of stuff, which is like, you know, oh, you know, uh, the, or Whenever you sort of hear these screeds that really amount to um, people getting mad at you online, it does sort of feel like these are the types of guys who are using um, using like me- they're using both like media and government as their personal armies to try settle mm-hmm. scores against like anonymous accounts or accounts with like 200, 300 people. Um, and but because of the way that like online culture and because of the ways in which like media is so dependent on uh, this type of like this, this type of system of online for lots of different yeah. reasons that we've spoken about on the show um, it is now very very easy for people who basically don't have any power even in a digital context you know these are accounts with like 400 500 followers that can often get doxed um being presented as like this enemy for unspecified reasons but again like as we've spoken to like specifics don't really matter in this instance because mm-hmm. what you know the, uh, they're not an enemy because of what they're saying or they're not really an enemy because of like what you know they're even if they're sort of attempting to fact check or whatever they are enemies more because of becoming by being online becoming symbols of yeah. resentment and by
1: being young or not white or not male or
0: not Yeah, well and the, or, and that you know, and you are often yeah. more of that you know, you can become that symbol much more easily if you are not white. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think, you know, you you mentioned like some of the yeah, you mentioned like some of the um campus like people like not even activists, like just students on campus that have been presented as like, you know, anti uh anti British activists and like will have like dozens of columns sort of written about them with the intention of like basically getting them to like shut up. And like I remember um, years ago, there was a student, I think at Goldsmiths. Uh, I won't name her, um, but like kind of received very similar statements or similar types of treatment from the media yeah, yeah, based yeah. on like a joke that she had made yeah. uh, in a student union thing. So I think that's like very, yeah, it's a very sort of succinct point. Um, one thing I also wanted to ask you or like uh, and this, this was the thing that like Phoebe and I were talking about uh, before we kind of came on. Uh, was the uh, the ways in which nostalgia has kind of, or well, like the ways in which nostalgia groups online, but also nostalgia generally is like is, is expressed online and has changed. So she made the point that like you know um that nos- like uh, whether whether well, she wanted to ask like whether you kind of feel like the expect the the degradation of expectations, I think is the way she put it. So groups that used to sort of be like, you know, remember when you could like ride your bike outside and or remember when you could leave your doors unlocked or remember when, you know, again, when the bin man was respected, when the teacher was respected, this kind of idea of like an idyllic Britain that has now sort of been lost. But, you know, we now have like different types of nostalgia groups, which are kind of not even kind of optimistic about imagining that type of idyllic past like you know she gave the example of like a group which is like remember when we watched gladiators and then blind date afterwards like just <laughs> yeah. these really like just these really mundane observations of like british life that are kind of or just about life in general that are then kind of transformed into these uh nostalgic expressions and i wondered whether you, whether you had any thoughts on like that like is this a degradation of expectations is this just kind of like you know uh just people remembering like you know things from their childhood in normal ways or
1: i mean i I think it's both and and i do think that you know when when we talk about things like uh nostalgia and kind of political melancholy like we can get a bit too we can get a bit too involved in it being purely in the interest of critique it's like oh remember the past do you reactionary are you um and you know, like I say, these are universal uh, human feelings. I was, um, I don't know if you've had this uh, experience yet, but a few years ago, I went to the National Railway Museum with my mom. And I love the National Railway Museum, it's my favorite <laughs> museum. I love choo choos, I love the trains, I love all of it. Um, but, you know, she, um, there's a kind of big shed with the different carriages and the trains and them that. And she was looking at a Pullman sleeping car from the 1950s and she's like, mm. oh God. Oh shit, this is exactly what I used to travel on holiday at Scotland in as a uh, mm. as, as a child. And she's like, I remember I remember the catch on the little bunk, I remember the door handles, I remember how the steward would come round with hot water for dad to shave in, in the morning when we arrived at Fort William, you know? And and I was like mocking her like, oh, look at you, you're old, oh, you're in a museum now. And then I walked around the corner and there was an Intercity 125 carriage from <laughs> nineteen ninety-two. Yeah. And it, the, the feeling of suddenly realizing that part of your life world has become not just history but heritage it's become yeah. like an actual museum exhibit it's it's like someone walking over your grave but no worse so like i was walking yeah. around this thing and like i remember that like i didn't know that i could remember what a british rail microwave lasagna looked like but mm. i did i you know I, the coffee cups the the window frames just ev- like the the patterns of the fabric on the seat like everything about it was, it was genuinely spooky, mm. and I think we all have that. And yeah, like seeing seeing nostalgia memes coming up about like, "Hey, remember dancing to the Arctic Monkeys when we were kids?" i like, there are nostalgia memes for people like ten years younger than me now. Right, right, yeah. Like there are, no, I, look, I, I'm old. I'm 41. I can remember communism. Um, there are nostalgia memes for people who can't, and that mm. that's horrifying. Um, but uh sorry i can't
0: remember where we were <laughs> no i mean I, it's, traumatized
1: an by that carriage.
0: <laughs> it's an interesting point because i think i've sort of felt similar things in some ways where um and i mean i you know also just like thinking about technology as well like the fact that like you know so my my sort of formative childhood memories like being online involve like Big desktop computers and CDs and floppy disks and like, like how, how do you, you, know. you have
1: formative childhood memories of being online? That's that's insane. Right. To me. That's
0: another that's another thing too, right? But we it's like very. our much, doors yeah. are locked and I
1: play outside in the street.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. And like a policeman would like you know uh would uh, would uh, would break your bones, but now the police aren't there anymore. That's great. Um, But it's just kind of like it almost there was a, there was like a really interesting essay on this. And I can't remember. I can't remember where it was from. So uh, I I will find it and may, maybe post it in the show notes if I do remember it. But the the gist of it was uh, just even the idea that, like, I think, as you mentioned, because nostalgia has shorter and shorter kind of tails, I guess, for lack of a better Mm -hmm. term, like, does it sort of become something else in the degree? So like during the pandemic, for example, like, I think that was obviously when lots of nostalgia groups suddenly emerged, because as people kind of stayed at home more and they kind of lost social interaction, like the only thing that they could do was or one of the things that they could do was, um, kind of retreat into memories. Um, I was working for a magazine at the time and I wrote this piece about, uh, people who were listening or like people who were creating, um, soundscapes for, uh, on YouTube. And so you'd have these things like, you know, you're walking, it would be titled stuff. Like, you know, you're walking through a nineties mall, uh, and like, they would sort of like play with the sound so that it sounded, you know, so that you'd hear nineties music, but you'd hear it as if it was being played through a kind of like tannoy in a mall. And That's like so every funny. so often you'd listen to it and there'll be these really complicated like soundscapes. But what was really interesting was that they were being made by people who had never lived in that time. And so they were right. getting their references from TV shows. They were get like that they had just discovered during the lockdown. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they were getting their references from like their parents or like their kind of siblings and stuff. So they were creating simulations of what they felt being in a mall in like Ohio in the 90s was like and just it was like in history right and it was just like and it was insane it was absolutely insane but like these videos are really popular and they would get like thousands of like views and you know if you read through the comments like there would be people who were like yeah i was born in like 1990 no i was born in like 1985 and i remember like this is like an exact kind of replication of like my childhood or my teenage years it's like yeah but this was made by like someone who was born in 2005 or like 2001 so like you know, It it felt it felt very it felt like very strange and I wasn't sure whether like you could necessarily call that nostalgia. But I think it's a really good example. No, no, I mean
1: I I mean it is like nostalgia. You know, we're having imperial nostalgia. The Empire ended when. You know what I mean? And 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 the the Empire we look back to doesn't actually have a date. It's always just beyond the last actual kind of like nameable historical Mm. horizon. Um, I
0: think it's 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 a good way of like also that what the term that you came up with like of like emotional economy. I think like that's sort of where like its popularity emerges from. Like people were going to these things, not because they wanted to like live a simulation of what life used to be like, but to kind of go back to, or like an attempt to sort of go back to what they sort of felt were better, like better moments in your life, which kind of leads me to, um, and I'm conscious about time. So like, I'm going to like, I have a few more questions, sure. but um to sort of uh, go into this broader question about like nostalgia and the ways in which like it kind of limits our imaginations. um And I wondered whether, uh, so you you write a lot you write a lot about this in the book mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the ways in which like imperial aesthetics and imagery is kind of recycled and like one of the effects of it is that like over one of the like the effects of its dominance means that we can't really either imagine what a better future would look like or that you are sort of actively discouraged from doing it. Um, like one of the sort of succinct examples being kind of memories of uh, or like the sort of uh, not even memories, but the ways in which like war imagery is sort of recycled. Mm-hmm. So there's like an image in your book where um, a Spitfire, I think, is like juxtaposed next. Yeah. to. So this was during COVID. Right. Yeah. And but the broader point being that like, oh, in order for like uh, in order for like um, this type of program to be like promoted, they weren't kind of talking about how. No, they weren't really, they you know, what wasn't really being advanced was like, okay, this presents like a new way of like, or we can look at different ways of like providing healthcare, or like this is an example of like why universal healthcare is important, and like this provides an, a way in which we can innovate around that. It was presented as you know, the kind of you know, it was through the war imagery, it kind of reproduced kind of myths, uh, that. It, were sort of told and like i'm not even sure how many british people necessarily believed it but that idea of like mm. the whole keep calm carry on thing yeah um you know which myth, myth myth doesn't
1: work quite on the level of liberal belief does
0: it <laughs> right exactly But also these are like two very different things right yeah. like you know and so yeah. the idea of sort of but like what the choice of imagery sort of being there because that's the sort of thing that you go back to whenever there's like a crisis in mind right and i wondered whether you could talk a bit about like the choices of imperial imagery and like what kind of gets recycled and what doesn't and like the persistence of it and how these kind of like is it for sort of like recycling of these images that forms like ends up kind of informing an environment where it becomes almost impossible to imagine what the future could be look that yeah. could look like generally rather than even even if not just better, but even just to imagine, well, what could the future look like? It kind of seems difficult to do. Yeah. So,
1: um, I mean, it's quite a com- complicated question. Uh, of obviously, like at the the kind of most powerful nostalgia in our in our culture at present is is nostalgia for the war and the reconstruction in the kind of mid twentieth century. Um, mm. And probably not an accident that's because those are the earliest memories of the generation that's leaving the stage now. Uh, but also because we have this obsession with the Second World War, which other countries do as well. I'm reading a really good book by um, by Jane McGlynn at the minute about memory wars in um, in Putin's Russia and the ways that. Uh, the way that the Great Patriotic War, was, they have it there, the Second World War, is kind of being really aggressively interleaved into all media depictions and discussion of uh, the war in Ukraine. Mm. Um, and I think the example of COVID nineteen is really good for us here because the the kind of the war was so aggressively inserted into the experience of COVID nineteen, and the way that was you know, that was really that were you observing from abroad, you would have said the British state's official line is that we're fighting the second World war again. You know, like the queen Mm. gave, uh, the queen invoked her first radio broadcast during the war when she was in uniform, Mm. she had a picture behind her. Like, um, Mm. there was that absolutely insane VE day thing where it's like, you can all stop lockdown just for now. As long as you dress up as a spitfire and run around, like I remember bunting blowing in, in our porch at home, which is not Mm. a usual thing to happen. Um, and yeah, there was someone painted a Spitfire blue and painted it with the names of, mm. uh, of first responders and wrote, thank you, NHS, underneath <laughs> the wings. And it did a tour of hospitals that people were obviously dying in and having awful times at work. And so much of this, like you say, is about, I think there's, you know, there's, there's kind of double valency to a lot of this stuff and all the ways that we use kind of nostalgia in our organized ways. On the one hand, it was about, it was about it was a disciplining measure it mm. was a way of saying this is just like that other time here's how you should behave it's also a discipline a kind of disciplining and policing measure in in a way that kind of says you'll never be as good as this so i remember like uh, lord ashcroft deputy chairman of the conservative party tweeting um here's a list of things i imagine young people would say today if they were in the second world war oh i don't identify as a gender that can go into uniform Oh." Um, I'm a vegan. Don't give me ration cards. You know what mm. I mean? It was just like the most kind of the most abject pathetic kind of list of petty grievances about the imagined blue haired youth and how mm. they, how they wouldn't have done very well in 1941 41 in the blitz, you know? And mm. um, it's, it's complete ahistoricity. I mean, you know, the fact that there were, there weren't a lot of vegans at the time, but there were actually separate Russian books for vegetarians. Um, and, and, you know, the war the was also a kind of, was a kind of, in some ways, a wonderful and liberatory time for a lot of queer communities as well. Right, like, yeah. Because <laughs> everyone was banging all the time. <laughs> um, you know, like, it's a-historicity didn't matter. It's purely a discipline tool. And I think there was a lot of that around with the COVID's era invocation of the war in a way of kind of saying, like, this is us There was an odd sense of loss kind of like we won that time Mm. and this time we're winning again even though everyone's dying Mm. um and we can't win you know like there's a kind of way that the kind of the melancholy and the sense of defeat inherent in nostalgia even for Mm. even for supposed triumphs kind of really moved from subtext to text i thought um But yeah, at the same time, I mean, it is a disciplining thing. It can be used to limit expectations. Obviously, memories of the past are the core of all politics, including Mm. emancipatory ones and including, like, you know, good politics. I mean, I was, uh, I remember, like, back in the early days of communism, I was was quite sceptical myself for various reasons. But one of the things that really made me feel sceptical about communism was that spirit of 45 stuff, you know, the Ken Loach film. The way yeah. people are like, oh, yeah, good old-fashioned socialism. Yeah, build, build the welfare state again, like we did after we defeated fascism. It's like the world is not like it was in 1945 to forty eight. Um, mm. You need a politics for today. And also, it's very easy to feel gooey about Clement Attlee and then go into the polling booth and still put your cross next to the Tory. It's, those things don't, don't necessarily aren't, aren't incompatible. I think, mm. you know, there's, there was this kind of like, I think that had a lot to do with who Corbyn is politically in his, in his age and the kind of where it's, oh, it's just good, solid, common sense, old-fashioned socialism. So you, there's no use for old-fashioned socialism in a world that's on fire. You need new socialism. Um, so whatever the political content was, uh, mm. I felt that presentation was inherently quite reactionary and limiting and kind of foreclosed on a lot of the possibilities for what you could be trying to do politically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I say, it doesn't have to be about lowered expectations. It doesn't, you know, the, the kind of longing to go back to safely playing on bomb sites. Obviously, it's a, it's a favorite tool of reaction, but it's not. I don't think it, it, it is inherently reactionary. I, I, I don't think it necessarily, I don't think it has to limit us or political imagination. Sorry, mm. that's a bit vague. But yeah, well, no, I, 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 I think... Just, I want to stick up for nostalgia, basically. <laughs> I think it's great.
0: Yeah, I mean, I didn't. I don't want to be cynical. Uh, although I think when I sort of look at nostalgia content, it's really easy to think that okay, well, the people who are using nostalgia effectively, in terms of like imagining a future and certainly not a better future, are unfortunately uh, of the fascists, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like the, like in terms of like being able to utilize nostalgia in order to sort of like inform a very particular kind of politics. And obviously, again, one that isn't necessarily rooted, not one that isn't really about like reclaiming anything material or even aesthetic, but it's more just about invoking the feelings of loss and mourning and then reflecting them in broader resentment. As an uh, excuse to give
1: someone a kicking, basically.
0: Yeah, well, our, our fascist groups, right? Yeah. Um, And we can see that like online, we can see that in terms of like the tradarque, architecture guys, the statue guys, yeah. um, the people who like use imagery of like Enoch Powell, but also of like um you know Robert Clive, uh lots yeah. of other sort of like colonial leaders, which I'm really surprised about. Um, often they're not just from the UK or like, you know, in the yeah. West. Like I've seen like India, like on like uh like in on Hindutva Twitter, for example. Not Hindutva Twitter, but like on like certain uh in like Indian uh uh corners of Twitter like this kind of real odd nostalgia for Um, British Imperial forces, Mm. uh, which is very, very strange. And like, uh, I am we don't need to talk about that on this episode because I am still trying to understand it myself. But like just kind of the, you know, the uses of nostalgia in those ways, it's really, I guess, to my mind, it's like, it's really easy to then look at nostalgia, particularly as it's reflected online and to kind of be like, well, actually, if you're going to advance or try to advance like a progressive or kind of, you know, even a more sort of, Uh, equitable uh, leftist type of future like nostalgia might not be the best way to go about it but I don't know whether that's like about nostalgia itself or just the ways in which it is reflected and expressed online and I wonder whether there's like a better way of you know in your mind like are there better ways to use nostalgia especially if you want to kind of advance you know a fairer and more kind of equitable like or if you wanted to like help create a better society is there a way in which you can invoke nostalgia to do that i mean
1: to be honest i think i think the problem here is like as, as long as it's something that we're calling nostalgia and we're serious about calling it that it tends to be the reactionary version of remembering things mm. um nostalgia itself is, is obviously it's algebra it's, it's the pain for for whom it's it's a kind of longing and um generally no, you can't. You can't really make a progressive politics out of it. I mean, like I say, I'm, I'm not a historian, but I, I do think you know, like history and historic, like an understanding of history and a and you know good historical critique is is really essential to any decent politics. So that's that's an unbelievable truism. Mean, you can edit that out. Um, but I. <laughs> You know, I I also think there's there's a, a Scots phrase like hats off to the past, jackets off to the future. There's with mm-hmm. you know the, there's a way of being. We're, we're all part of tra- certain traditions, and traditions can be really valuable. And I've I've really very little time for for politics that isn't doesn't conceive of itself as being in a tradition. Um, even mm-hmm. when not, you know, it, it doesn't mean you have to be. Clement Hartley, It doesn't mean you have to be Watt Tyler. It doesn't mean you have to be, you know, Joe Winston Lee. Um, I don't, I don't like any of those people's politics that much. Um, but these, you know, there, there, there are always counter histories. There are always strains that that you can engage in. I think, you know, I think, I think, you know, uh, like more, more marginalized people are, are much better at understanding this instinctively than uh, you have a white middle class person. A bit mm-hmm. like, oh, it's all bad. Oh, I'm too cool. Modernism now. It's like <laughs> you do need to kind of in in your attitude to you know to, to historical time. You, you do need a kind of commit a commitment to modernity, a kind of like mm. a forward movingness. But um, but to have a tradition is, I think, a really valuable thing.
0: Mm. And you know, like, I, I, was, yeah. I, was, I was
1: I was talking about, say, the Russian case. Like, obviously, what what what's the, the way that like the second world was mobilized in, uh, in Russian politics are incredibly like pornographically grim now. And they have been for a long time and it's never not been a tool of power, but also, you know, like I, I challenge you to speak to your average Russian. Like if, if you could even take state propaganda out of the uh, equation and, and, and be rude about their effort in the second world war, like, uh, that their, their sacrifice and, and their courage was, was a real thing. And, mm. uh, and, you know, just deserves honouring and, and so not not without critique, obviously. But and and it's the same for us. I think.
0: Mm. There's um just to, like end with there's like one that like in your conclusion where you sort of talk about how um I don't know whether the right way to put it is like how you can sort of escape nostalgia at least, because there's, there's a line that sort of sticks to me that's like right at the end of the book, which is that like we have to disenchant ourselves. Um, and I wonder whether like that's kind of where. When we sort of think about nostalgia and the ways that it can be used, like that's really the crux of it. But it's like not necessarily like you can't really escape nostalgia. And I think, as you mentioned, like, you know, it is a kind of like very human experience, it is a very emotive experience. It's also one that like is fairly involuntary as well. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is sort of like recognize what those feelings are. Yeah. Um, and so you can sort of use nostalgia productively and you can recognize that it is very much part of the human condition. But the real problem is when you sort of, when it, when it, I think, lack for a better term, like when it enchants you, when you're sort of fixated Mm -hmm. by it, when it sort of like informs the way in which you kind of like view the world, which is kind of not just artificial, but very individualistically centered. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder whether like that's kind of the point that you, well, I wanted wanted to ask like whether that's the point that you were trying to make, that like what like needs to be done or what should, or what one thing that could be done is to really what you know to when we want to sort of think about how to use nostalgia productively, to think about the ways in which we can do so without it kind of well I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think of like what the best way to frame it as like, is it is, is there a way to sort of understand nostalgia that kind of doesn't naturally center the individual? Like is it something where we can use nostalgia to kind of inform a more collective understanding of like the world that we're in and like where we can sort of move to. And I wondered whether you could just elaborate on like that, your, your sort of like concluding notes.
1: Well, I mean, I think there's, if it's, it's, it's about trying to, uh, I, th- I think it's largely an educational task, to be honest, um, on, on, on a culture-wide basis, like there's a basic move you make when you when you read history, like, and I remember learning the word historiography in like sixth form because I'm an idiot, so it took a while. Um, and just going, oh god, there's an actual study of how history is made. It's not all just there. It's not. It's not objective. Um, there are there are reasons that people want to do different narratives, of different things. And I think that's a really important mental move that everyone needs. Uh, that should be part of any history curriculum. And um, to understand that history is is written for reasons there is there's no such thing you know it's narratorialized there's no such thing as an objective history and people just even when they know that intellectually it's very very reassuring to fall back into refusing to believe it and this is where like i think nostalgia is kind of a narcotic and that it kind of it gives you a holiday from the hard work and the kind of discomfort of confronting the world as it is Mm. and it's one of those habits of thought that Allows you to retreat to just just the ways of acting and being, ways of relating to the past, the future, and yourself that are mm. just a lot less work. They're a lot easier. And look, life's hard. Everyone's working their asses off the whole time. Um, obviously, you want a bit of a holiday, and nostalgia provides one. Um, mm. So, you know, I think uh, there is that kind of cultural change to be made. Like just a basic wider understanding of what historiography is uh, would be great. Mm. And in the meantime just to just to know that to know what nostalgia is and also this is where I, I've, I know I've already praised it but Hannah Rose Woods' book uh, on the history of British nostalgia is uh, one of those brilliant mind-flipping things where it says look people have always been like this it's we always think we're the first generation and miss the past as soon as you realize you're not um, so much of the kind of of the seductive power of that position is taken out of it
0: Mm, i think it's a really good point it's a really good point to end on as well uh um, i will say peter thank you so much for joining uh joining us and uh coming on the show we really appreciate well, it thanks for having me. um i uh, i will put the the link to uh purchase the book in the show notes but i wanted to ask if people wanted to kind of follow your work or your thoughts how could they do that
1: um i'm on twitter um and hopefully soon i'll be writing another book
0: i hope so too i really i really hope so too i really enjoyed reading this uh and do take that as a recommendation like go buy the book and go read it um i think it really is quite clarifying and it's really it's kind of like quite a smooth read as well so it will not take you very long uh if you're worried about that um this was a free episode of Ten Thousand posts so thank you so much for listening we have lots of good bonus content on our patreon uh five bucks a month you get access to interviews you get uh just extra episodes. We do like film reviews and stuff as well. Also, all your support helps us to run the show, and it also means that we can keep the show editorially independent, which is very, very important to us. Uh, as mentioned, Phoebe is not here, but do check out all her stuff. That would be Masters of Our Own Domain podcast. Also, listen to the Rome series that she and Milo did with Patrick Wyman. Uh, follow her, uh, subscribe to her Substack as well. It's roy.substack.com There's some really good stuff on there. This show is produced by devon follow them at devon underscore on earth also listen to their podcast which is called kill james bond it is very 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 good um and i think on that note i will wrap it up so until next time catch you later bye